Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12, our sermon text is Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And again, as is our custom, I'll ask that you stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Mark 12, verses 18 to 27, give ear to the word of God. It says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when, will, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham? And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This ends the reading, the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. Let's pray and ask his blessing uh, on his word to us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that you not, have not left us in the dark to grope around to try to figure out who you are or the way of salvation in Christ. We ask once again that you would be our teacher. We are helpless to understand your word on our own, but we, we thank you for your spirit, and we ask that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit once again. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been, uh, if you've been here or have been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark, here in these last uh, couple chapters especially, you might notice or you probably have noticed a recurring theme, a lot of recurring themes in the Gospels. But in this, in Mark, there's a recurring theme of unbelieving Jewish religious leaders uh, testing the Lord, testing Christ and testing him, trying to trap him in his words, trying to trick him into kind of exposing himself to different charges of blasphemy and whatnot. Now, this you know, sometimes we pastors and theological types, we like to debate. And uh, sometimes we, we like to debate to kind of prove who's right or who's smarter or whatnot. Not, not really a good motivation to do that. That's not what they're doing here. They're not just, uh, this isn't just an uh, empty uh, kind of academic exercise. This wasn't about bragging rights. They're not just trying to make themselves feel smarter and make Jesus look bad, although they certainly wanted to make him look bad. Uh, Mark eleven eighteen says that, they were doing this to try to destroy him. Their, their motive was his death. That's what they were seeking in these questions that they asked. It, it isn't always apparent to us how that is, uh, but it, it, all of this is in connection with the perception and, and Christ's proclamation, really, that he was the Messiah. Uh, they, they did not want to accept him as the Messiah. They rejected him as as God's Messiah and as the Christ. And so if they could get him to say something that would be perceived as blasphemous, you know, so, now, it, would it be blasphemous for Christ to say that he's the Son of God? No, because he is the Son of God. You know, that when, in one of the other Gospels, I believe it's the Gospel of Mark, 
he tells uh, a group of people, before Abraham was, I am. And their reaction was to pick up stones to stone him. You know, multiple times this was what they tried to do. Now, it's not that he would be wrong to say those things. It's that it would be perceived as blasphemous. And that's all it would really take to have happen. Now, this uh, repetition of testing Christ and trying to trip him up, uh, the first thing we saw was back in chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, and there were the chief priests and the scribes. Remember, Christ came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He entered the temple. He started tossing tables over and, and throwing chairs, throwing people out of the temple. Uh, and what they did after that was they, they came to him and they asked him, you know, who died and made you king? You know, like, where did you get this authority to claim authority over the temple? You know, this wasn't just... Jesus coming out and saying, you know, I'm, a, I'm an authoritative teacher, you should listen to me. That, that's true. He was claiming authority to say what's what and what goes in God's temple. Now, who, who thought they were in charge of the temple? The chief priests and the, and the uh, scribes. Well, Jesus showed up and was like the homeowner showing up and letting tenants know they were just tenants. And they didn't take very kindly to it. Now, they, they asked him where he got his authority, and so Jesus, as he often did, what did he do? He answered a question with another question, and the question put them in a corner, and so they decided not to answer it. And so Jesus said, well, neither, neither am I going to tell you where I get my authority from. And so strike one. Strike two were the Pharisees and the Herodians. In the beginning of chapter 12, the previous passage to our own here, the passage was chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, Again, if, you're, if you've read your Bible a lot, if you've read the Gospels a lot, you might read that phrase, Pharisees and Herodians, and think, well, yeah, of course, Pharisees and Herodians. Those were very strange bedfellows. That was the oddest of odd couples. And what brought them together? This, these two groups that never would normally see eye to eye on much of anything. There were the secular people, the secular people who all they cared about was the secular authority of Rome and what they could get out of it, of being, being attached to that. And you had the Pharisees, who represented kind of the conservative religious element among Israel, and the last people they would have appreciated would have been Herod, would have been the Herodians. But what brought them together? Hatred of Christ. Of all the things they hated about each other, they hated him more. And so what did they do? They came to him, verse 13 says, they tried to, quote, trap him in his words. And it was a, a, a kind of a, a landmine of sorts that they asked him, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's, it's one of those, uh, you know, I said before, this is an awful analogy, but I can't think of a different one or a better one. But you may have heard the, the old uh, sort of a joke. People say, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? There's no good answer to that, right? If you say yes, well, that means you used to beat your wife. If you say no, well, you're even worse. You're still doing it. There's no good answer, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he says no, what happens? The Roman authorities don't take kindly to that. They, call, they consider that insurrection. They've had people rise up within Israel and lead rebellions before. And they thought that's the kind of Messiah or king he was going to try to be if he said that. And if he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, that crowd of people in the temple that was cheering him on not too long ago, well, they, they might see something wrong. Like, what kind of Messiah is this? And so what does Jesus do? He definitely answers the question in such a way that uh, not only does not expose him uh, to the threat of, of persecution or, or death, um, he asks them to give him a coin. 
And he looked at the inscription on it, the picture on it. It was of Caesar. And he said, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's. And his answer so amazed them. It, it, it told them, I think, in some ways that, you know, they didn't know who they were messing with. You know, one greater than Solomon, one with greater wisdom than Solomon was here. And it says in verse 17 that they marveled at him. You know, their jaws were on the floor. They thought, we thought we had him. And he answers it clearly. He doesn't duck the question. We would duck the question. We'd change the subject. We'd try to dodge it. He didn't duck it at all. But he answered it in such a way that all they could do was agree. Well, here we go with strike three, as we're going to see. The Sadducees get their turn. It's like everybody wants their crack at Jesus, and everybody is arrogant enough to think that, let me at him. You know, my turn. You guys, are, you guys aren't so smart. We're smarter than you. We'll, you know, we know what to say. We know how to get him. And so it says that they, in verse 18, it tells us a little bit about the Sadducees. They were the religious leaders there uh, who said, what does it say there in verse 18? They said, they say that there is no resurrection. In other words, that's, that's something they commonly would teach. This was a, a, a hallmark or a highlight or a low light of what they commonly taught. Acts chapter 23, verse 8, tells us a little bit more about them. It says, Acts 23, 8 says, For the Sadducees, as a group, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So, the, the, the Sadducees, if you want to think of it in, in these kind of a terms, they were kind of the, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, they were kind of the theological liberals of the day. They were the anti-supernaturalists of their day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in spirits or souls, the spirits or souls of human beings. Um, in a lot of ways, despite their religiosity, they didn't believe in anything they couldn't see or touch or feel. They believed in God, but how far that went, we, you know, it's hard to tell when you don't believe in all these other things. Matthew Henry calls them this. He calls them the deists of that age. And then he likens them also, even worse than that, he likens them to skeptics and infidels. But what's a deist? I won't give you a, the dictionary definition so much this morning, but a deist is someone uh, who, you know, people very often claim our founding fathers were deists. I think some of that is nonsense. But a deist is someone who believes in God, but doesn't believe God's involved in anything with us. That God, you know, the, the analogy of the watchmaker, you know, God kind of winds the watch or the clock up. That's the universe. Sends it merrily off on its way and then steps away from the scene and whatever happens, you know, it's not on God. It's just the way things naturally occur. That's what a deist believes. You know, it's, I like to consider a deist someone who's an atheist who lacks the courage of his convictions. <laughs> they don't really want to believe in God, but they don't want to see me religious or, or, or blasphemous. So they say, oh, sure, I believe in God. What does God do? Well, not, not a whole lot of anything. That's all on us. We're all the, the victims of random chance processes and things like that. That's... That's the Sadducees in, in a lot of ways. If you think of, of liberal Christianity, uh, there's a lot of analogies between that and the Sadducees. They were the liberals of, of the day. And the first thing we see in our text in verses 18 to 23 is they offer Jesus a, a kind of a hypothetical question regarding the resurrection. Now, Mark already tells us they don't believe in the resurrection. They denied it. They taught that there was no such thing. And so he's giving us a hint because they, they weren't the most well-known group in the world, at least not to us in our day, of why they were asking what they were asking. Verses 18 to 23, it says, 
And Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, uh, and the seven, the brothers, all, all seven, the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, when they say, when they say they're, you know, in the resurrection, when they rise again, now, Mark doesn't tell us, you know, they were smirking or, you know, they're not, they're not actually saying they believe this is the case. They're kind of mocking it. They're saying, you know, you believe in a resurrection. Hey, when this resurrection, you almost imagine the air, air quotes, you know, when the resurrection happens, uh, whose wife is she going to be? You know, they thought they had Jesus kind of pinned uh, on the horns of a dilemma there. Now, notice again that the enemies of Christ, as they already have in the previous passages, uh, they make kind of a show of a pretense of showing respect for him. What do they call him again? Teacher. Now, were they coming to Jesus to be taught? No, they thought they were smarter than him. They were trying to trip him up. Uh, back in verse 14, the Pharisees and Herodians did the same thing. Teacher. We're, we're just here to learn at your feet. You know, teacher. They tried to hide their hostility towards Christ by calling him that. They tried to mask their evil intent, which was to do him harm and destroy him. And this is also kind of a hint of cowardice on their part. Why did they call it? Why didn't they walk up to Jesus in the middle of everybody and just call him out? They feared the crowd, just like everybody else did. They were sticking their, their thumb up in the air and seeing which way the wind was blowing, and the crowds revered Jesus. They wanted to make him look bad, but they didn't want to make themselves look like they wanted to make him look bad. Now, if you remember in chapters 8 through 10, at least three times, Jesus over and over again was repeatedly telling his disciples about his upcoming death and his resurrection. Chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, again, about one chapter later, chapter 9, verse 31, and then chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, verses 33 to 34. Over and over again, as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus is no longer talking in parables. He's telling the twelve and those with them, I just want you guys to know, I'm paraphrasing, here's what's about to happen. They're going to reject me, they're going to mock me, spit on me, beat me, the Son of Man, they're going to kill me. And after three days I will rise. He told them that, if you read those three chapters, it says over and over and over again, and he said it, quote, plainly. He didn't want them to be shocked and surprised when they got to Jerusalem as what was happening. And this, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of that of their rejection, of the, of the religious leaders of Israel rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. Now, you know, he's telling his disciples over and over about the resurrection, about his own, his own resurrection. And in a lot of ways, the message of the cross and the resurrection was central to everything he said and did. It's kind of central to the whole Bible, really. And so when, when the Sadducees rejected the, the entire notion of the resurrection outright, uh, you can see how, how much of a collision course this was. They, they aimed to, to disprove it, and they did so by, uh, you know, if any of you have ever been in debate clubs or debate classes or studied logic, uh, there's a lot of Latin phrases people like to use. I don't know why they don't just make them in English, but there's a form of argument called in, in Latin the reductio ad absurdum, and I can sort of train, I don't know Latin, 
but it basically means reducing someone else's position to absurdity by, by means of kind of pushing it to its logical extreme. Like, take whatever the position is and say, okay, if, if this is true, if I take this to the most logical extreme, you know, where, where the trajectory where it's already headed, here's what's going to happen. That's what they're trying to do with the resurrection. They're trying to make the resurrection and therefore Christ look really absurd. That anyone who would hold to it must be an idiot. That's kind of what they're trying to say. And they, they do it on the basis of what uh, is to us kind of an obscure passage in, in the books of Moses. They, they, they don't so much quote it, but they refer to it. And that's Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. It's what's called the, the law of leveret marriage. Leveret is the word for, brother, for, for brother-in-law. So, or in-law. So it's, it's the brother marrying his, his deceased brother's wife. Uh, and this is what Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 says. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And here it is. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So, you know, we, we don't have really any concept of that in our day, obviously. But, but the, you know, in their day, in their, in their time and place, the continuation of the family line was extremely important. If, if, if a, a man's uh, family had, he had no son to continue the family name, it wasn't just the family name, it was the inheritance in the land. And so if, if, if they had no child, the, the, their portion of the inheritance went to someone else. And so this was, a, this was not just a, a small thing for the brother to do for his, his dead brother. It was a matter of inheritance. It was a matter of providing for, seeing that his family was provided for. So the Sadducees took that, that kind of obscure law of Moses in the Old Testament and they used it to paint kind of this weird hypothetical picture that surely never happened. It's hard to imagine this kind of thing actually happened, but this is how people argue a lot of things, right? They take the most extreme form they can think of. I won't get into the, the topic of abortion, but that's one of the things people use that kind of a logic for. They say, well, what if this happens? Then you have to support it. Well, here they paint this hypothetical picture of seven brothers, each in turn marrying the wife of the first brother and none of them having offspring. It's possible, it's a hypothetical, but it's possible. And this is what they thought. They thought that if there were such a thing as an afterlife, you know, if we really continue after we die, if there is such a thing as a resurrection, we have some problems here because seven of them were married to her. Right? And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, you know, what's the result here? If there's an afterlife, if there's a resurrection, according to them, God basically mandates... Polygamy, because in the resurrection, this poor lady's been married to seven, not just seven guys, seven brothers. What is she supposed to do? God has made her kind of a, an accidental polygamist, and polygamy is unlawful according to God. It's, a, it's, it's making God the author of marital chaos. That's what they seem to, to believe and think. Now, skepticism, even among people who profess to believe in Christ and believe in the Bible is really nothing new. I think that's one thing this passage should point out to us. People treating the Bible this way isn't something new to our day. It didn't begin with modernity. It's not something new. It's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. 
You know, many people in churches in our day, even in our town, maybe even those claiming the office of minister or pastor, often do the very same thing to scripture that the Sadducees do here in our text. What do I mean by that? They profess to believe the Bible. Ask a liberal pastor, you know, do you believe the Bible? What are they going to say? Now, they, if they're honest, they might say no. But, oh, yes, of course, we, we respect the Bible. We, I hold one every time I preach, I hope. You know, we have one maybe at the front. I have one in my office. I, I have one whenever I enter the pulpit. Um, you know, they, they profess to believe the Bible as the word of God, so they say. Then they start finding doctrines and things taught in the Bible that they find to be uh, inconvenient or distasteful or even worse, the worst thing of all, unpopular among the people that they are around. And so what do they do? They try to disprove or redefine different parts of the Bible or they, they often pit one part of the Bible against the other, uh, so to speak, to, uh, to, to disprove certain things or to support their own positions. You know, think about the way that modern-day uh, Sadducees in our liberal churches today deny such things as uh, biblical doctrines such as sin, judgment, the existence of hell itself. How often have you heard someone pit the love of God over against his holiness and justice as if those two were in conflict? How could a God of love, you've probably heard this, how could a God of love ever condemn someone to hell? As if God's holiness and his justice were you know, butting heads, so to speak, with his love. This isn't a biblical way to look at God's, at God's word. Or consider what many in today's church are saying about sexual sins of all kinds in our particular day. How many in the church today refuse to acknowledge the lessons, the plain lessons of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, the clear teachings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6. 9 through 10, not just, not just about homosexuality, but about, but about all sexual immorality. Many, many so-called pastors and so-called Bible-believing preachers uh, tiptoe around that or, or deny it flat out, as if God has changed or as if his word has changed. Now, does, that, does that way of dealing with the scripture describe you today? I trust that it doesn't, but do you, do you pick and choose the parts of the Bible that, you're, that you find agreeable or that you're comfortable with or that agree with what you already think? Do you pick, pick the parts you like from the parts that you, you don't? Do you find yourself pitting one part of the Bible against another part of the Bible as if it somehow contradicts itself, which it does not? And do we do this to, to justify our own thinking? Do we do this to justify our own sins? At times, do we do this to justify our own skepticism or unbelief? Um, you know, the, the very same Bible that, that clearly teaches us about God's wrath, quote, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that's Romans 1.18, in the same passage, no less, also tells us about the gospel being the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It's just a couple verses apart in the same book. And that, that, uh, and that also that in the gospel, quote, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Romans 1, 17. Think about just that passage. It's a microcosm of all of scripture in some ways. Between Romans 1, 16 to 18, Paul says two things are revealed by God from heaven. One, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. We just looked at that with the Reformation's 500th anniversary uh, in, in recent weeks. 
But he doesn't fail to affirm and to teach in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God against all, what does it say? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness is revealed from heaven as well. Why is the gospel needed in the first place? Why is, why is forgiveness from sins needed in the first place? Because the wrath of God is also revealed. God's love and God's justice and holiness are not contradicting each other. All of God's perfections uh, get along just fine in him. Thank you very much. Well, the second thing we see in our text is Jesus' defense, his defense of the resurrection, his answer to the skeptics' questions, their mockery of the resurrection. In verses 24 to 27, Mark writes this, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? It doesn't really beat around the bush at all there. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know, they, they come to him with feigned respect. You know, teacher, Jesus doesn't kid around in return. He doesn't fake anything. He tells them they don't know the power of God or the scriptures themselves. They knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't know them at all. In another more important sense, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Moses, the books of Moses were the only books they affirmed. So Genesis through Deuteronomy were the only books in the Hebrew scriptures that they held to. So he says, you want to quote Moses to me? I'll quote Moses to you. Have you not read, have you not read in the books of Moses that you, you claim to believe, right? Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Twice he tells them they're wrong. Doesn't try to be nice about it. Doesn't try to hurt, you know, save their feelings. He says, you're wrong. And then he ends with saying, you're quite wrong or you're badly mistaken. You're so far off the path. You veered so far off. Uh, you didn't have Thomas guides back then, but they could have used one, apparently. Um, and he, why are they wrong? Two things. He says, they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So they're wrong on two accounts, on two counts here. First, I'll take them in reverse order. They were wrong. They were mistaken about the power of God. The Sadducees assumed that the life to come, if it was a real thing at all, would be nothing but a continuation of the way things are in this life. All they knew was what they could see. They couldn't imagine what, what else would it be than what we already have now. They failed to understand that at the resurrection, marriage will no longer be needed. Marriage will then have fulfilled its God-given Purposes, He tells them, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. You know, uh, there's another passage in the Gospels where it talks about the, the, you know, the, the return of Christ, you know, the, the, the judgment. And it says almost the exact same phrase. You know, uh, up until the time of Noah, to use an example, they were marrying and giving in marriage. It's like a, it's like a, a phrase that sums up life as usual. In, in both cases, he's saying, you know, at the resurrection, resurrection is not life as usual. It's not like this. And just because it's not like this and you can't imagine, it doesn't mean that it's not the way it's going to be. So in heaven, the only marriage that will continue forever is that between Christ and his bride, which is the church, which our marriages are a small picture and foreshadowing of, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 
5. Well, the second thing that our Lord does is prove the afterlife and the resurrection by means of a, a very well-known passage. I'm guessing that many of us here today, when I mentioned Deuteronomy 25, uh, that most of us didn't go, oh yeah, Deuteronomy 25, that's, that's the Leverett marriage passage. I've got that memorized. That's my life verse. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. I'm not mocking the Bible, but just it's not a very familiar passage to most of us. I had to look it up myself. I didn't know, I didn't know exactly where it was. I knew it was in there somewhere. I had to, to look it up. But I'm guessing you might not give me chapter and verse, but I even asked uh, Ben and Eliza this weekend, do you know the story about the burning bush? Everyone knows the story about the burning bush. It's one of, the, it's one of those stories that almost jumps off the page at you when you're a kid. When you're a kid... It's not maybe not the first one you think of, but the burning bush. You've got Daniel in the lion's den, Joseph's coat of many colors, David and Goliath, these fantastic stories. You know, they get our attention the same way it got Moses' attention. Remember in Exodus 3, Moses is walking around and there's this bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. That's an odd thing to see. You see something on fire, but it's not burning up. It gets your attention. And so it says he turned aside to see what in the world and then God, I'm paraphrasing, you know, tells him, wait, don't come any further. You know, take your sandals off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. Everybody knows that, that story. Um, so Jesus, you know, they, they basically, the Sadducees, picked an obscure passage, part of God's word, nothing, nothing uh, wrong with it, but kind of one kind of, kind of obscure passage that maybe only they would really have in mind to disprove the resurrection. And what does Jesus do? He picks one that everybody knows. And, you know, it's almost like a mocking tone. Have you not read? Of course they had read. Everybody knew the story of the burning bush, but Jesus basically tells them, you know that story you've known since you were this high? Did you not get the point? Did you miss the entire point of that passage and why, why God calls himself what he calls himself when he mentions himself to, introduces himself to Moses? The verse he picks is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, a very familiar passage about the burning bush. And here's what that text says. Uh, he tells, God tells Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, maybe you're following along and you're saying, well, how does that demonstrate the resurrection? How does that prove the life to come? How is it? God refers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and even to Moses' father, who were long since dead and buried. How long, at the time of Moses, how long had Abraham been dead? 400 years? I think that's longer than our country has existed. 400 years after, you know, roughly, give or take a, give or take a few decades, right? Abraham's buried in the grave. Isaac is buried in the grave. Jacob is buried in the grave. Moses' own father, probably already dead and in the grave. And yet, what, how did God identify himself to Moses? I think sometimes we read those passages and without realizing it, our, our, our little brains translate them without thinking as, as if they said something else. We read them as if he was saying, I was the God of your father, and I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but that's not what he says. He says, I am, present tense, Right now, as he was talking to Moses all those years ago at the burning bush, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. The fact that God speaks in the present tense of his people who had long since died and been buried 
is proof positive on the word of God that they are still alive, very much alive and with him. He's still their God. That's the point. That's, that's a powerful God. That's not the God that a liberal Sadducee or anybody else would imagine who only can define things by what they can see. God speaks of his people in the present tense, even though at times we, are, we tend, I think, to speak of them in the past tense. He's still the God of Abraham. He's still the God of Isaac. He's still the God of Jacob. And he's still their God because they are still alive with him, even though they are gone from us for the time being. And more importantly, he's still the God of all those who have died in faith, for they live with him now. When you read Exodus 3, that's maybe the main point we should get out of it. It's what Jesus drew from it. It's how he took down their arguments about the resurrection. Now notice, notice Jesus' view of Scripture here. I know that's not the main point of the text, but think about Jesus' view of the Scriptures as, it, as demonstrated here in this short passage. What does he base his entire argument on? Not to get grammatical, the tense of a verb. As somebody who studied Hebrew and is no expert in it, that's not an easy thing to, to do sometimes. He he bases his entire argument on the tense of one word, one verb. I am, not I was. So what did Jesus view scripture as? He viewed the scripture as inspired of God, authoritative down to the very words. Not just the ideas, not just the part that we're comfortable with, the parts that we understand or can explain. Even the words are inspired, breathed out by God, and authoritative for doctrine and for life. His uh, Christ's own view of the scriptures is evident back in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Matthew five seventeen to 20, Jesus says this. You've probably read this a million times, but he says, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets is, is, is the Old Testament scriptures altogether. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that's the Sadducees' worst nightmare, the things they can see and touch, you know, not being the way they are anymore. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or some old translations say not a jot nor a tittle. It's the smallest marking of a pen and the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whatever, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's easy to read right past that, but you, know, you might get an idea from that last sentence. Um, he was letting people know what he thought of the scribes and Pharisees already, that their, their righteousness didn't measure up at all. And if the people wanted to get into to God's heaven, uh, maybe the best example wasn't those people uh, to follow. But what does he say? Not an iota, not a jot, not a tittle, not a, not a dot would pass from God's law until it was all fulfilled. I mean, even the smallest marking of a pen. Did you, how did Jesus view the scriptures? All of it, down to the words and markings of a pen, are inspired by God and authoritative. And he says to them, you know, if they had really known and understood the scriptures, even that passage uh, that they knew, they, they knew the passage about the burning bush. They might have had it memorized some of them. I mean, they, they could probably quote it if they were called upon to do so. And yet, knowing as they knew, 
they missed the most obvious truth taught in it. The truths of the immortal souls of human beings, the life to come, and even the resurrection were right under their noses the entire time, and they had missed it. I mean, they had not just missed it, their, their entire view of, of the Jewish religion was so faulty and so lacking because of it that it's hard to imagine people holding it with a straight face, but we know in our day many hold the same kinds of, of views. Now, thinking of application for our text, um, I don't know if you have, I, I'm guessing you probably have, but I have been to memorial services uh, one in relatively recent days when, and years when the message that was preached at those services uh, sounds like it came right from the lips of a modern-day Sadducee. Sadducees would feel very comfortable at many services that we have for funerals and memorials when we even bother to have them in our, in our days. You know, one, one such one was, I remember there's being, you know, there's often, this is the way they often go. There's much talk of the dearly departed living on in our hearts, and in our happy memories, amen, let's pray and go eat. That's how they go. Long as you have your cherished memories of so-and-so, they live on in our hearts. As if that really offers any comfort to someone if they take that logic and, and go to its logical conclusion. And what a hollow comfort that is. Sentimentality is no substitute for immortality. Sentiment is not all that comforting. Jesus Christ promises you and I much more than mere sentimentality, doesn't he, in this text. He doesn't just say, hey, don't feel bad. They live on in our memories. He says a lot more than that. He says they live. God is the God of the living. They don't just live in our memories. They live. And what a true comfort and encouragement this should be in our times of grief. You know, even in the face, as Christian mentioned uh, of tragedy and wickedness like we saw in Texas this past Lord's Day where a wicked man dared to strike the apple of God's eye and attacked and murdered dozens of the Lord's people in God's house as they worshipped. It's hard to imagine a more wicked thing than that, just like last week's psalm with Doeg going and murdering a city of the city of priests, the people that worked in the house of God, murdering them as if he were serving God. You know, we, we think about that and we grieve and we weep uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered such unspeakable evil. Uh, but what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? We don't grieve how? As others who have no hope. We grieve. We weep with those who weep. Jesus doesn't promise that we'll never grieve. He says we won't grieve like those who have no hope. He doesn't say you'll never weep, you'll never have sorrow, or you'll never know affliction. He says you won't do those things as those who have no hope. No, we, we believe on the basis of Scripture and a basis of Christ's own words himself here in our text that all of those dearly beloved and departed saints are alive right now. They're more alive right now than you and I are at this very moment. They're more alive than we are, not less. At this very moment, they are now worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in his presence more joyfully right now than we ever do in, on this earth. They're more alive than we are, not less. One day we too will be more alive in that sense and more joyful in our worship. We'll worship Christ in his very presence. That's what we look forward to. 
Paul says in Romans 8, and not even death itself is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the comfort that only your gospel brings, that only the truth of your word can bring to us in time of suffering, in time of, of evil and disaster and acts of wickedness like we, we saw last week. All these things uh, that the, the sentimentality of, of the liberal perversion of Christianity offers no real hope, no real comfort, no lasting anything. Uh, it's nothing but whispering, whistling through the graveyard. We thank you that your gospel gives us real hope that no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what losses and griefs and afflictions that we experience, that none of these things can ever separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's because of that that you, you tell us there in Romans also that all things must work together for our good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you will make all these things, all the worst things in this life that may come our way, you will make all of them work together for our good, for our salvation, and for your glory. Give us grace to trust in you, to trust in your word. Help us to, to believe. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We thank you that, that death is not the last word for any of us who are in Christ, that one day... All, all that death will do is usher us into your presence, the presence of the fullness of joy that we look forward to. We thank you for this. We ask that you would once again be with those families, especially in Texas right now, but elsewhere in the world where your church is also persecuted, that you give them great comfort and peace and joy in your Holy Spirit, that you would give them comfort to know that you are the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And we ask that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you, has not yet trusted in Christ for salvation and life in his name and forgiveness that you might make today, even today, the day of their salvation, when you draw them to yourself through faith in your Son. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.